And speaking of an exercise in worship, I would invite you to turn one more time to the book of Galatians. And I do mean one more time because we are finishing this book of the Bible off. And uh, it's, uh, it's finishing us off, hopefully. It's uh, power-packed and... And this should be a good wrap-up for us. I was talking to one of your advocates who was sitting next to me, um, who's nine years old, and he said, Dad, please don't go so long in the pulpit today. And I, I, during the worship, I, just, I showed him my notes. I said, do you see what I have here? I have a lot. I, what do I do? But at least you can know that you have advocacy um, just on your behalf with a day like today. But verse 14 of Galatians 6 is our summary verse in terms of Paul's intent for Christians to be crucified to the world. And and that leads us into verse 15, which speaks of being a new creature or a new creation in Christ. And we spoke of these things last week as a part one. And that will again get us uh, ramp and runway into part two. Listen to verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is the implicational force of the gospel on the life of Christians. We're crucified to the world and the world to us. We're not living a religion of legalism. No, we're new creations in Christ. Uh, These are summary themes and summary thoughts to the whole book of Galatians. It's all been grace. It's all been Christ. It's all been the cross and being crucified. Paul, in essence, as I said last week, is saying, I'm different Because I'm in Christ. Something died in me when I became a Christian. And now something is alive in me because I am a Christian. And we talked about how for the non-believer, the only answer to sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And the only stopping point in the suffering of sin's consequences in this life is death. But For a believer, though death is the same solution, it's not our death that solves sin in our lives. It's Christ's death for us on our behalf that resolves the sin dilemma in our lives. We are crucified with Christ and crucified to the world. And so there's this already not yet dynamic that we live where we are dead to sin and yet we're still fighting it. We're dead to the power and domination of sin's temptations, and we have now the living power of God in our lives to fight it. It's as if we're already in heaven, but we're not yet there. And so we need to live as though something died and something is alive in us as we persevere all the way to heaven. What died and what lives is the question that you can ask yourself as an application As you fight the good fight of faith, as we journey from now to the future, 
As we live in the already where the kingdom has come in our hearts now, we taste and see that God is good now on earth now, but it's going to be better in the not yet, in the future. So living in the now or not yet is basically saying, okay, what died in me? What in the world's attractions, the flesh and the devil died? What did I die to? And now what In regards to the Holy Spirit and the new creature in Christ dynamic, what's alive in me now? What's dead and what's alive? That is the question to ask as we journey through the final verses here. Well, first of all, just by way of review, a love for self died and a love for Christ is now alive as a believer. Paul is saying, far be it for me to boast in anything except the cross. I don't want to, I have, I have no regard for boasting except in the cross of Christ. He's clearing the decks, doing a clean sweep, saying it's inconceivable to think about boasting in self or boasting in being self-absorbed. I want to boast in what Christ has done wholly for me that I could not do for myself. I want to have a radical testimony. Like the woman who anointed Jesus' head and feet, who said, I was forgiven much, so I love much. I love Christ and what he's done. I've died to the idols of the world that enslaved me in control. And I have been freed by being crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. As I said last week, it's impossible to boast boast in yourself and boast in the cross simultaneously. And so we come to a frame of mind as a Christian, and we should progressively so, where we say... The world is dead and dying to me, and Christ is alive and living for me, right? That is the Christian journey. That is the walk of faith where you can say, I am in a lessening care for the world and what the world says for me or about me or what I think the world says I should be. This world, this external veneer, this cosmetic that is satanically charged and satanically fused where life becomes something where it's all that you could ever experience in these 60, 70, 80 years and then it's over. We eat, we drink, and we die, and that's it. And Christ's gospel says no. Our citizenship is higher, it's future. It's glorious, and it's something that we experience now, and then we will experience in its fullness in the future. Now and not yet. How do we get there from here practically? And we have to say, glory to self died, and glory to Christ lives. The world is nailed up like a felon. And then secondly, we have a power that's inside of us. We've moved from trusting our own power to try to control our lives, to try to control our future, and we have the Holy Spirit's power in us. Look at verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature or new creation in Christ. New creation. That's what you are. Not circumcision or uncircumcision. It's not how you play your religion that's going to set you free. 
It's the Holy Spirit's power in your life that sets you free. It's not the haves and the have-nots. I feel inferior to that person's spirituality because that person projects him or herself as better than me. And it's not the superiority complex where you're looking down and saying, I am far better than that person because of what I do and who I am and, and how I'm regarded. All of that has to die, and we have to count it as dead. It's not right or wrong to be circumcised in this context. There was the Titus example where it would have been wrong for him to be circumcised because he's saying, I'm saved by grace alone. And then there's the Timothy example in Scripture where when he was led to faith in Christ, Paul said, be circumcised as a deferential act. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter either way. It's a conscience issue, and it was a timing issue in terms of why they did what they did. But it's not a control issue in terms of religion. So now this leads us to point three. Point three, verse 16. And as far as all who walk by this rule... Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Verses 14 and 15 are so strong, and we went through them last week, that it's easy to miss the power of verse 16. Paul here is encapsulating all that he's said so far about the gospel, even in chapter 3, and he calls this a rule. Don't be thrown by that word rule in terms of it sounding legalistic. Rule here is the word canon, where we get the word canon. We talk about our scripture in, in Christianity as the canon of scripture. The word canon is the word standard or measurement. All of the Christian life is measured by the sufficient, authoritative, inspired powerful word of God. God has given us the word as everything we need for life and godliness. The Bible is our canon. It's like a carpenter's survey line by which direction is taken. It's how everything is measured in our lives. The word of God is the doctrine of the apostles. The word of God is what governs the church. It's by which the church's health is measured and how the church reforms itself is according to the word of God. Well, here, Paul is using the word rule or canon in terms of how the word of God is applied in the gospel. We are walking by the Holy Spirit according to being set free in the gospel because of grace through faith alone. That's the rule he's talking about. If you've been set free... You need to walk by this freedom. This is the standard that we walk. We walk in terms of being a new creature in Christ. Paul here is praying this. And as for all, he's calling out to all people, Gentiles and Jewish converts. He's even calling out, I think, to the Judaizers who are the false teachers, those who are misguided. He's calling out and saying, any one of you, who will walk by this rule, who will walk by the Holy Spirit, who will walk by the free grace of the gospel. Any one of you who has not come under legalism and religion, but you're coming under a gospel of relating to Christ and Christ alone. Any one of you who's doing that 
will experience the peace and mercy of the gospel. Look at that in verse 16. You've counted circumcision or uncircumcision or those requirements as something to be left behind. That's not what this is about. This is about being a new creature in Christ. This is about a way of life where you're not falling prey to a curse, but to life and peace. Anyone who walks by this rule will have peace and mercy. That's Paul's prayer. Peace and mercy be upon you, church. Let me ask you this. Don't you want peace and mercy in your life? Are you willing to give away all of what the world dangles in front of you that says this is how you can be free? This is how you can be happy. This is how you can find equilibrium with the stresses and pains and obligations of life. Here are these paths of escape that are being dangled out in front of you. We should be willing as Christians to trade all of that away and say the free grace of Christ alone is what gives me peace and mercy. It's what elevates us up above all of what the world is saying. No, 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 peace and mercy is found in this way or that. What is peace? Peace is your new relationship with God that's enjoyed by all believers. It's being right with God. It's where the cross has built the bridge where you as a sinner were at enmity with God, but now you're at peace. You're made whole. You're able to rest as a believer. You're able to sleep at night as a believer and rest physically because spiritually you're resting in Christ. You're under a no condemnation status. You're Sensing the Holy Spirit's work in your life where he overrides the norms. Where you go, no, I love that person. I have joy in the circumstance. I have peace with God. I have patience and kindness and gentleness and meekness. I have self-control. These are manifestations of a fruit which is called the Holy Spirit in your life. You're abiding in Christ. You're submitting to the Holy Spirit and you have peace. And then there's mercy. Peace is talking about positively being right with God. And mercy is talking negatively about the divine removal of your sins. It is the fact that judgment has been set aside in your life. We're going to go through a lot of things in our lifetime, right? A lot of highs and a lot of lows. There's a lot of unexpected things. And as you look even back through this last year, you, you could easily say, you know what? There were about five to six things that I did not anticipate that, were, that happened to me that I just, they were just surprises, whether health or circumstantial or job-related issues. Who knows? But crises come. But for the Christian, you have peace with God and you have The idea of mercy in your life. God is not going to count your sins against you. And this is what we experience. Practically speaking, again, if you back up to the beginning of verse 16, if you're someone who doesn't walk by the rule, if you don't walk by the canon of the gospel, the standard of the gospel, if you don't walk in the free grace of Christ alone, if you're someone who's walking in the flesh walking in worry, walking in control, then you have no peace and you have no mercy. Peace and mercy might be applied to you as a believer, but you're not experiencing it. 
you don't feel peaceful. You don't sense the conviction that you have mercy with God, right? And so your call in the Christian life is to walk. That's Paul's prayer. Walk by the gospel. Walk by the truth of the gospel. I was thinking about this. It was very convicting for me as I was preparing for this morning because I do get wound up like probably some of you do in terms of worries and cares and controls and wanting to grab on to things and fix them as if I could. Fix things, force things, make things happen. It's so convicting. It's so tempting to fall into that sinfulness. And the older I get, the more it seems complicated the problems in my life become where you have to try to fix things even more sophisticatedly with more sophisticated sophistications. <laughs> but instead of any of that and all of that, the solution to, to that dilemma of trying to be Mr. Fix-It is to say, no, I'm going to walk by the rule of the gospel, which means to rest in Christ, rely on him, believe that he is in control and Realize that the control in your life should have died. You are crucified to that control and you are a new creature in Christ and there's power in you that lives. Christ lives in you. You're not walking outside of the will of God. Now you walk by a rule. You walk by a direction. You're inside and in the center of God's will because you're walking according to the word of God, which is the will of God. God speaks to you in terms of truth and calls us as Christians to walk by this rule and to experience peace and mercy. This is what Paul is praying. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What is the Israel of God? I mean, this is like a semester of theology moment. Now, I'm not going to do that to you. What is the Israel of God? Let me first of all just go there in terms of a a grammar idea. It says, and upon the Israel of God in the English Standard Version. The and here, the Greek word chi, could be taken as a particle for even. In other words, explaining the church as the Israel of God. And I'll say it this way. It's not so simple as to say, well, the church is the Israel of God, but Paul is talking directly to the church and he is using this concept to explain a whole lot in an economy of words. The Israel of God is not two groups, but one. And in this sense, Jews, ethnic Jews who are saved, are saved in the exact same way that Gentiles are saved. Any Jew that ever was saved, is saved, and will be saved, is saved by grace through faith alone. Any Jew that was saved in the old covenant Old Testament system through the ceremonies, through the sacrifices, those things did not save that Jew. Doing those things, keeping the law never saved a Jew. Those were types and pictures of Christ who they would have to be looking to, to be saved by grace through faith alone. Whatever they understood in terms of prophetic revelation, whatever they understood in terms of a need for a Messiah, they're always saved by grace through faith alone. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He is the father of faith and the supreme example to us of someone who believed everything that God told him and he was saved by grace through faith alone. 
And he was saved by Christ's sacrificial substitutionary atonement alone. And the Bible ties all that together for us. Actually, Hebrews 11 will teach us that as well. And that's going to be in the fall where I'm headed, by the way. We're going into the book of Hebrews. So we'll tie together Old Testament and New Testament. It'll only take about six months, but no problem. At least in chapter one. Just kidding. My nine-year-old will keep me accountable. Don't worry. Ephesians 2.14 says that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken. So Paul's point in Ephesians and in Galatians is that the ethnic barriers are gone. The social, geographic, and even male and female barriers are lowered in the gospel. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. We are one. We are the Israel of God. We are Galatians 3.29, Abraham's offspring. We're heirs. So in the church, we experience an incredible opportunity to enjoy the continuity that God creates in his plan from Genesis to Revelation, from the Old Testament economy with Israel to the New Testament church. We are in beautiful continuity together as the people of God. Every possible and every unimaginable background that we bring into the church is found in beautiful continuity in the gospel where we're all saved by grace, Philippians 3.3, where the true circumcision. Again, Paul is saying circumcision doesn't matter. You didn't, as a Gentile, need to become a Jew first by keeping ceremonial law before you are graced in Christ. You're all the Israel of God. Now, certainly there is still a plan for Israel. There's still a plan for physical, ethnic Israel. I believe the Old Testament promises are as secure and strong and literal as the New Testament promises. Romans 11 speaks of this as well. Romans 11 includes ethnic Israel, though unbelieving now as destined for salvation. Romans 11, 25 and 26. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, which it is a mystery. It is something that is being revealed to us. A partial, hard, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Israel for now in, in God's plan is hardened partially while Gentiles are being ingathered into the people of God. But that ethnic distinction is still held by Paul as he speaks of this. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So the Israel of God is referring in one sense to Jews who are believing during the New Testament church time. But there's also the sense in which we don't throw away the Old Testament promises about ethnic Israel in terms of God's greater plan. The bottom line is that Jews are saved by grace of faith. But listen, Romans 2.28 might shed some light. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. And if you tie that with Romans 9, 6 or 8, we can get fully, fully enmeshed in a theological discussion that is way difficult to grab hold of in five minutes. But Romans 9, 6 or 8, just look here. It says, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen to verse 7 here for a second. This is a very important verse. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What is Paul saying there? Remember, you have Abraham, and he married Sarah, but there was also Hagar. So from the same progenitor, from the same husband, you have descendants going in two directions. So you have, you have Abraham through Sarah to Isaac, and you have Abraham through Hagar to Ishmael. And you have two different lines. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans is that those who are truly of Truly God's people who are of Israel are those who are Israel according to a promise. And those who are still physically descendants of Abraham through Hagar, through Ishmael, are not part of God's promise. You have two different streams, two different people groups. And so just because someone is ethnically a Jew, this is Paul's point, it does not, does not mean they are part of God's remnant in the future. It does not assure them heaven. A Jew who is physically a Jew is under a stupor right now, is under a curse, is under a partial hardening. And they have the same opportunity to believe the gospel that a Gentile does. And in that sense, that's where Paul is saying, Jews and Gentiles who are believing right now in this church age are the Israel of God. They are people who are part of the Abrahamic promise and are believing. But there is a plan in the future, I believe, for the remnant of Israel to be saved. But again, it will come through grace, through faith, by grace through faith not through circumcision, not through law-keeping, not to returning to an Old Testament um, law and making that New Testament legalism. Not at all. It's by a new, being a new creature. Number four, number four, verses 17 and 18. Something dies in a new believer when they come to Christ, and that is the idea of hiding. Um, as... A non-believer, I think we are more prone to self-preservation. And as a believer, we should be open to persecution and suffering. You see? As a non-believer, it's easy to say, I'm going to protect myself at all costs. I'm going to insulate myself from attacks. I'm going to isolate myself from any form of persecution, whether physical or verbal. I'm going to go into self-protection. As a believer, you become like Christ. And Christ is the supreme example of someone who walked around in the world and spoke the truth and took hits. Verbal hits, accusations, people being arrogantly um, just mean to Christ. Flying in the face of Christ's truth and the truthfulness of who he is the gospel that he was presenting, the kingdom that he was bringing, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all kinds of religious leaders trying to trip him up and go after him. He suffered while he walked this world. And he suffered horribly and physically as well. That example is the example for Christians to grow through suffering and to go into this world with vulnerability 
and the ability to be vulnerable. Something dies. Self-preservation, self-protection, hiding from persecution dies. And then something lives. And that is the, the willingness to take a stand for Jesus Christ. I'll never forget in high school, it was the biggest deal. I went to the, this public school. And the biggest thing for me back then was being you know, a surfer with an image. I had my image. I used to have my hair, right? And I used to be blonde. And I used to walk around, and, and that was everything to me. And I would protect myself within friendships and within my little world. And then when I became a Christian, something died about that. It was like that did not matter anymore. The superficiality of image died. And something came to life in me where I thought, I don't care what people think anymore. I don't care. I'm crucified to the world, the world to me. I mean, I, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I, there's just something that was awake, awakened in me. And I, we had Christian sweatshirts that were being passed around in youth group. I put one of those things on and I showed up. And I felt like I was just a target, a living target. Because all of that external superficiality was laid aside. All of that world armor was laid aside and I, had, I felt like I had put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I walked in and I was sitting there in my desk and I was thinking, what is that guy behind me going to think? Because I'm a senior in high school and I've been this one thing this whole time and now I'm this Christian and, and the, the sweatshirt wasn't even cool. I mean, it was like bright and it was nasty, you know, it just was not well put together, but it said something about Christ and probably had a verse on it. And I remember, I thought, well, there's only one way I can face this. And I just turned around and I said, what do you think about the words on the back of my sweatshirt? And I just went there. And that's, that's a, you know, a very, very soft version of persecution. But that is an example of something dies and something comes to life. Look at the passage here. Paul is saying, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. And he's not saying that he's not open to persecution by saying that. He's just exasperated. He's speaking to the Judaizers who have gone against converts where he's led people to Christ. Paul is, in one sense, um, it, this is like a Pauline second coming where he's airdropped back into the churches that he and Barnabas had won to Christ. He had won these believers to Christ. And now they were being deluded in their understanding. They were being misguided. And he's saying, can you guys just knock it out? You know, can you knock it off? Cut it out. And he's just saying, I don't want to deal with this anymore. He wasn't avoiding persecution. The verbal persecutions were coming. He had endured physical persecution. But he's basically wanting these believers to remain loyal to the gospel and dead to the old creation law. And so he's saying from now on, I've laid out the gospel, chapters 1, chapters 2, chapter 3, The gospel is clear. Do not cause me trouble. Here is the true gospel. And Paul is saying, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus Christ. I've lived through persecution and I have suffered for this gospel. Stop calling me a hypocrite because 
the grace that I've experienced on the outside is being born into out, out, outwardly and it's been borne out in terms of the marks that are on the outside of me. Paul belonged to Jesus Christ and not religion. External marks on his body were proving that grace had happened on the inside. He bore suffering. And he stands out as different than the Judaizers. Verse 17 shows that he is bearing outward marks, whereas the Judaizers, they weren't beat up for their message whatsoever. These Galatians, uh, again, it's several churches in the Galatian area. These Galatians had seen, some of them had seen Paul literally dragged out of Lystra and stoned. Acts 14, 19 says the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. It was when Paul was in Lystra and having persecuted the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Paul had made himself a public spectacle because he was willing to be an evangelist outwardly and preach and put himself out there. And then he was bearing the marks of being stoned and suffering for the gospel. He had taken the mark that the Judaizers wanted so bad, be circumcised. He had taken that mark through his religious pursuit, but he had other marks as well. And these were the marks of suffering, literal scars, literal torture, literal imprisonments, literal beatings that Paul had undergone. Incidentally, the word mark here is the word stigmata, which means nothing or has nothing to do with what medieval churches and even, even modern high church denominations will sort of make into some kind of spirituality, um, some stigmata that happens where Paul's scars and his hands and feet inside find some kind of sympathetic identification with nail scars of Christ's death on the cross. You'll remember Francis of Assisi, the mystic in the early church, he alleged to having stigmata wounds appearing on his hands and feet inside. He, this is a quote from him, blackish fleshly excretions exuding little bits of blood, even the nails of iron growing out of the hands, black hard and fixed. All that is just mysticism and the stigmatization of, of these things happening in third world countries or even, even in um, being alleged in high church denominations it can be neuropathic, it can be subconscious or auto-suggestion or some kind of somaticism. And the reason I bring that up is it's happening. People believe in mystical things happening to them based on Christ and the gospel. And this has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about. People who use verses like these, bearing the marks of Christ to rationalize those kinds of experiences. People who love the paranormal will look for things and they'll look so hard that they'll begin to find those things that either aren't really there or are psychologically produced or perhaps even demonically produced. And that's happening even in hyper-experiential churches, hyper-continuationist churches that are they're going way off kilter, way off track, trying to find things that really aren't there or possibly are there because of demons. And I just, I bring that up because we need to be discerning as Christians. We need to use the truth to discern reality. Well, these false teachers, they, again, they weren't experiencing any form of persecution. No, um, 
persecution for a popular self-salvation gospel whatsoever. The world always loves self-saving gospel messages. Just go through the airport, look even, I mean, they'll have them pronounced right in the bookstore, right out front. People in the name of Jesus Christ who are smiling, who are promoting, and one guy goes down, another guy goes up, one woman goes down, another woman goes up. They will promote for money a self-salvation gospel. I guarantee you the criticisms of those people, those charlatans, is minimal. Verbal persecution really doesn't exist against those people, let alone physical suffering or physical persecution because there's no scandal where there's no scandal there's no marks where there's scandal there's marks slaves during this time were would be marked by tattoos to to designate ownership i think paul is saying i'm bearing the marks of being owned by my master the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, we read it last time, 23 through 25. Paul was beaten, he was beaten five times with 39 lashes. And the reason they would beat someone 39 times is because typically someone would not survive the 40th whiplash. And so he was beaten five on five different occasions, 39 times for Christ. And every lash of the whip was one that Paul felt believing that he was bearing that for Jesus Christ, for his glory. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. I mean, you you remember, you have Paul and Barnabas. You have Paul and Silas later in a later missionary journey where they were beaten with rods in Philippi and they were singing praises and hymns during the night. And the jail cells, um, you know, the doors flung open. But that was after they were beaten half to death with baseball bat-sized rods. Every blow was not just a blow against Paul. It was a blow against Christ. Second Corinthians 1.5 For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, Though Christ, through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort. 2 Corinthians 4.10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am, here it is, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. You say, why do Christians have to suffer here now on earth? It's a good question, right? Why do we have to suffer persecutions like this? Why are Christians beaten today, either privately in homes or publicly where it's not illegal to do so, where it's legal to beat Christians publicly? That's where it's happening outwardly. The beatings are taking place. Why? Well, Satan can't afflict Christ directly here on earth now because he's not here. So he afflicts Christ's body and afflicts Christ indirectly by persecuting the church, Satan and his followers, the world. We take the hits and we do so because we are living for Christ and for his message here and now. And Satan wants to stamp it out. It also, suffering vindicates that we are really empowered by Christ. I mean... Again, it vindicates the power of God. It vindicates the truthfulness of God. It vindicates the truth. It vindicates that we 
are more than conquerors. It vindicates that we are connected to Christ because when Christ was here, he was persecuted. So if he's not here and we are here as his proxy, we are afflicted like he was as well. The final benediction, look at verse 18. Verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I don't want you to miss this final affirmation. Paul began with grace and he ends with grace. It's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's grace, grace, and more grace. No matter how severe his warnings all through this book in terms of don't apostatize. Remember Galatians 1, don't fall prey to a gospel that's contrary to the true gospel. Don't follow another Jesus. Don't follow another gospel because you will be accursed. Let those teachers who promote a gospel like that be accursed. Galatians 5, 4, if you follow a gospel like that, you are severed from Christ. The warnings were super strong in terms of and abrasive in terms of the churches. And it's not that they could lose their salvation, but there were people people who would, would, could find themselves as never having been saved in the first place because they were following a false gospel, and Paul was being severe with that, that situation. For the most of them, Galatians 3.1, he's saying, O foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, Galatians 3.3, 3, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He was concerned about their Christian sanctification. Don't fall into legalism. But no matter how severe Paul was in his preaching, no matter how strong he was in these warnings, it's grace, grace, and more grace. And it's grace to their spirits. Look at verse 18. Brothers. What an affirmation. He's saying, you are Christians, brothers. You're brothers and sisters in Christ with me. John Bunyan, a Christian pastor from the 1600s, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, that allegory um, that is a dramatic bestseller next to the Bible. It um, is the most widely published book. But there was another book he wrote called The Holy War, which is also an allegory. And it's very strong. The closing scene of this book is fitting to close the book of Galatians. Emmanuel is the, is the Christ figure in this allegory. And he's speaking to residents of the town Mansoul, which is you and me as Christians. Emmanuel has helped uh, the Christians beat off the Diabolonians, Satan's army. And now he stands in the town square telling them how to stay free from Satan's clutches. Emmanuel says, I've loved you, Mansoul. I bought you for a price, a price not of corruptible things, of silver and gold, but a price of blood, my own blood, which I spilled freely to make you mine and reconcile you to my father. I stood by you in your backsliding when you were unfaithful, though you did not know I was there. It was I who made your way dark and bitter. It was I who put Mr. Godly fear to work. It was I who stirred up, and these are characters or people, but they're pictures of what goes on inside of us. It was I who stirred up conscience and understanding and will. It was I who made you seek me and find me, find in your own health and happiness me. Nothing can hurt you but sin. Nothing can grieve you but sin. Nothing can make you fall before your foes but sin. Beware of sin, my man soul. I've taught you to watch, to fight, to pray, to make war against your foes. 
So now I command you to believe that my love is constant to you. O man soul, how I have set my heart and my love upon you. Show me your love and hold fast. I take you to my father's kingdom where there is no more sorrow, no grief, no pain, where you shall never be afraid again. As Emmanuel rides away in his chariot, conscience, these are figures in the allegory, conscience, understanding, and will discuss the future and how they will have to be alert to keep the Diabolonians at bay. Unless they depend completely on King Shaddai, which is the father, Emmanuel, the son, and Lord High Secretary, the Holy Spirit, they will fall into enemy hands. Understanding asks, is this way better than the freedom you had before? Referring back to before Emmanuel had come into their lives. And Will struggled for words. He said the freedom we had before was like birds flying through broken windows, in and out, a deserted house, flying aimlessly, going nowhere. Understanding said, do you love him because you have to? Understanding's probing question was gentle. Their talk was to reiterate their faith and their talking was to strengthen each other. Will said this, I do not have to love him. I'm free. He's always left me free to do as I please. Understanding said, then? Will said, I love him because I want to. And I can never love him enough. This is the message of Galatians. We love God not because we have to, but because we want to. He's transformed us by the gospel of grace. Yeah, there's a fight. Yeah, there's a battle. We're going to have to always battle legalism. We're always going to have to throw off temptations. But if we come back to the fact that we began in grace and then we are sustained by grace, we began by free grace, and so now we live free by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're trusting in Christ alone for salvation, and we know that's all we ever needed to be saved. Then we can live and experience and enjoy the freedom and the grace of Christ and the gospel.